Sportsypreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports, entrepreneurship, and now mental health collide, a cast source production. In this NFT episode, I chat with Jordan Michael Schuster. I came across Jordan's content in the Trends community on Facebook. He was dropping insightful posts about NFTs. They not only captivated me, but much of the Trends community. If you are wondering what Trends is, go to trends.co. Anyway, Jordan is exactly the person I wanted to learn from when it comes to NFTs. Learn more about him and what he is up to. Simply check the links in the show notes. You can get this episode and more like it at casource.com. To get a framework real quick on where you're at with NFTs, right? Like we hear a lot of people that they're like, obviously you're all in. I get that. But from a standpoint of, let's say, the decentralized versus centralized, is it all or nothing for you as it relates to this? Or do you see that there's a need for centralized? Philosophically and politically, and definitely for as decentralized systems as possible because it puts more value into the creators and the collectors, you know, hands. And when I say creators and collectors, like that could just mean, you know, a person buying a candy bar at a corner store. And for some reason there's an NFT involved. And maybe they collected an NFT that's a coupon and they're going to redeem it at the corner store. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, it's like the fewer middlemen possible, the more value to either side of the chain. It's the whole point of these peer-to-peer systems is, you know, kind of like you can create a different type of business here by launching a digital asset. The cost basis is nothing compared to what it takes in the product world, in the physical product world. Right. And of course, you know, that can be tied to digital services or experiences, or that could be tied to, you know, real world services or products and stuff like that. There's just kind of different routes for each. Does it have to completely replace centralized? Or do you think there's a place where that can exist? I think that is unlikely to replace like centralized completely or like on what timeline would that happen? You know, probably a very long one. Sure. I mean, I think that like governments are digitizing their currency to exist in the 21st century. And these systems are leading the charge, thankfully. Like we're so lucky, to be honest, in my opinion, that these are kind of out there ahead of the curve because it's you can make and technologies of control, just like you can make technologies of you know liberty. And this technology can be cut both ways. And it is, you know, in different countries like in China and such, you know, they're they're using this type of technology for social tracking and other stuff. And it makes sense, you know. My vision, like when I first learned about NFTs years and years ago, and because I'm like a CPG guy also, was like, oh, this is like what we need for provenance tracking. Like, you know, I need an NFT for every ingredient you know, in every shipment and it needs to collaborate and collect into like a super NFT once it gets built. And then my customers can go and anybody can go and sort of track like the purity of the chain of, you know, they like to know that it's there. They don't necessarily want to go and look at it every day or maybe even ever. 
but they want to know that it's there and they want to know that it's there in a trusted system that is a peer-reviewed system that feels more trustworthy ultimately than like some private company. Everybody knows that the private company has a business model that they have to service and something of what they're doing is like a service and something of what they're doing is like their cut. Yeah. You know, I worked in the in the food product world and you know, we have like organic and kosher and total rackets. Oh yeah. It's fascinating you bring it up because my wife and I have three kids and my two daughters, I have a son as well, but my wife and two daughters have celiac. And you had even you mentioned packaged goods, right? And you referenced even in one of your, I think it was a comment, and you were applying to somebody else. If you're comparing them ingredients, right, on a box of like, let's say crackers, and you can verify those crackers either by like what they say on their website <laughs> versus what is like you're talking about like on the blockchain, and I can verify like which one do you trust more, right? To your point. Absolutely. And it's just a deeper level of trust. It's not doesn't solve all the game theory problems of trust, but it solves some of them. And it creates a couple of new ones, but it, it solves some like major ones. And ultimately, I think that people would sort of gravitate towards a better deal. Yeah. Like eventually, like Instagram will be like generational and there'll be some newer social media app that like grants like tokens and rights to like the creators that just grabs the next generation and it's a better deal. Like, why would they choose Instagram over that? It's like, fuck Instagram, you know? Right, right. Of course. The security that comes with it, right? And I was thinking about this, right? Because we have military, we have police, we have our protection on our computers. There's all sorts of protection that we have. And the concern that a lot of people have right now and what's happened, right? And you can speak on this is like, if you lose your key, right? If you lose your access, there's nothing there to back you up. Now we could say, well, is the government really, do they really have your back? And please get into all of that. But some of the concerns that people have is how complicated it is that you could lose something and you never get access to it again. There's insurance systems and credit systems that offer services for these types of things in the sort of traditional world. And you're going to see them in the crypto world, 100%. There's already like the early versions of these. Yeah. Well, because that's where people have to go to, right? Because it's such a huge opportunity for those companies. Okay. So it's like this. Like right now, do you have kids? Sorry. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Three kids. How old are they? Yeah. So I have uh, two teenagers and an 11 year old. <laughs> so basically three teenagers. Perfect. All right. So teenagers, they need some money so they can independently move in the world and like to the level that they're at. You're trying to figure out like, do we set up a bank account? Do we give them a credit card? Do we do one of these like kind of, you know, co-credit cards or like kind of kid credit cards or something like that? And, you know, you're going and making, you're evaluating these products and you're going to making decisions and you'll pick one, you know, that suits you guys at some point. For kids now, it's probably a lot earlier for me. It was like once I got into college, that's like when my parents were sort of really helping me with that. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I did work actually through high school and whatnot. So I had my own cash. So I was able to just kind of pull that off. But the crypto version is that, you know, payments are digital largely. Your kid has a phone or an apparatus that has apps on it, payment apps, and they need one that you can monitor. And in some cases, it needs to be crypto friendly. So like you're looking at the apps that have like, you know, the crypto interface and you're kind of doing the same thing. Like maybe you're monitoring their token allocation and they need that app for the game that they play or the event that they're going to. Or, you know, I, I think that in a lot of cases, like ticketing is going to go in this direction. Reservations. Like I'd rather have like the blockchain open table, <laughs> you know, than show up and have my reservation be double booked, which happens sometimes with like web two apps and this is just like immutable. So it's just like, no, fuck you. That's my table. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a big problem, right? In big cities. And that's how people feel. It's like tickets on, on a plane. It's like, you know, it never get bumped. It's like, right. that is my fucking seat. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. 
there's no like bullshit in the system that you guys are doing magic and whatever, and like preferencing somebody over right. somebody else. Like, yeah. Well, you had that a lot with uh, airlines, right? I mean, you constantly people would be sitting in your seat. I mean, that was a big problem. I mean, maybe they've solved it a little bit. I don't know. But like you're saying, like you can circumvent that problem. You know, the airline would prefer to have their own black box magic system, but the customer would prefer to have information. And, you know, the world is just evolving in such a way where it's like, they're starting to be like, well, I get the information this way. Why can't I have it over here? And then some company will be like, hey, there's a major pain point in the airline system. Like we're the system that does blockchain. Right. We're blockchain booking, like never get bumped. It's like, boom. Yeah. Amazing little leader headline, Facebook ads, 100,000 fucking users in a single day. Yeah. You mentioned in one of your comments about circumventing the smart contract, and we'll get into all the smart contracts and and you had a good response to this, but talk about it because if you're using Ethereum and you're buying the NFT, like what if someone takes that NFT and the royalties that are associated with that smart contract and puts it somewhere else, right? Like you said, it hasn't been done yet, but as we all know, the bad guys are coming. Just briefly, please. We were talking about the wallets and I had like a final point about that and I apologize. No, yeah, please go back. You can take it any direction you want. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So to me, a big version of the future of wallets and digital asset management is multi-sig wallets. So that means multiple signers, you know, in the wallet. So it's like, if you lose your keys, well, there's, you know, two other signers. It's like, son, you lost your keys. Well, mom and dad have like, you know, the signing onto the wallet too. So nobody can hack into it because our authorizations also have to be in line. And that could be with a company, you know, you got your officers that are managing the wallet. That could be just with friends, friend groups, or, you know, different things. Like that's like the existing layer right now to kind of like stave against kind of like negligent hacking issues, phishing scams and stuff like that. And most people are not doing that, but that's going to be something that's very popular. Well, let me interrupt that real quick and just bring up this point. So like if you have a trust, right? And the kid can't access funds from the trust today, they need three signatures to get to that money, right? That makes a lot of sense because there could be a large sums of money in there. If you had to get multiple signatures on your day-to-day use of things, that becomes a problem because, well, now I got to reach out to mom and I got to get my brother and myself to sign that. That's a pain in the ass, right? So, Yeah, I think it's just like a consensus building UI design issue. It's like, you know, just like you said, notifications, specifications and certain apps. It's like, yeah, I want to know about these updates, but not those ones. Like some apps like Discord has like 50 different notification settings, right? So imagine your setup in this wallet with your kid is like setting up certain conditions. It's like, yeah, purchases like, you know, under $25, you know, generally good up until this amount. Purchases like, you know, over this, like they need to check in, stuff like that. Like I can just imagine like a very simple, like five step or as detailed as you want to go, like in sort of the customization of it. And then, you know, yeah, you don't have to do that. But also, wouldn't you like to be notified? Maybe the credit card company will do this now on some of these kind of credit cards that exist. But like, wouldn't you want to be notified if like your kid, like, you know, tried to spend 500 bucks or something like that randomly? Like, what the fuck is they spending on? Right. <laughs> Seems like a large purchase. Like, that, yep. you know, that could be a lot of things. Like, yep. what is that? Yeah. Well, it makes sense, right? I mean, my son's got a card and he goes out there. And if he goes out to Chipotle with his friends, like, and he spends $90 at Chipotle, like, clearly he's buying lunch for everybody who's there and probably the people behind the counter. So, you, so I do get those notifications. So you can even see him playing out in that world. Here's another aspect of it. And this kind of scares me in a way, but like, imagine your kid's age is identified into, you know, the wallet. So they can't use that wallet to purchase like alcohol if they're under 21 you know, the smart contract would automatically reject it. Yeah. You know, it's like, you don't even need to ask the CID. Right. 
the transaction would never go through. That a lot of what you're saying is like the opportunities that exist in there. Because like a lot of the questions I'm asking, I'm not against it, right? I'm just trying to figure this thing out and sort through it. And you see that the UI design, that's someone out there that can go develop that, right? What an opportunity. I'm that, that, I'm that guy. Yeah. I'm that guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm working on developing wallet apps right now. And there's a bunch of guys like me out there, you know, trying to figure out how to make stuff really cool. Mm-hmm. You were on another tangent and I interrupted. So I don't know if you're able to go back to that or not. I want this to go all over the place. I could ask you a question. You could answer any question that you want for all I care because this is just fascinating to me. It's all kind of related too because it's like you talked about circumventing, right? Smart contracts. So it's the idea of NFTs out there and they take it off of Ethereum and they put it somewhere else. I don't know exactly how that would work. But the bad guys are here. The bad guys are coming. They're always going to be there, especially if there's a lot of money to be made. Is that a concern you have? I mean, you answered it very well in the thread, but kind of like just talk about that a little bit because I think it goes back into the security a little bit, the safety of, hey, I have this contract. I have these royalties to it. Someone somehow circumvented the smart contract and maybe the smart contract wasn't good enough. I don't know. And they've taken it somewhere else and now I'm screwed because I don't have any royalties on the new network that it's on. So the kind of seed of the question, if I remember correctly, when we were chatting online was like, what if somebody takes my asset like off network, you know, do I still get the royalties? Because in a lot of cases, what people are sort of interested in right now is like the collectible NFT world and the idea that these NFTs have royalties built in. So when the sales happen on a single network that they were built on, let's say Ethereum, where most of the kind of like art NFTs are, if there's a 10% royalty in that, every secondary sale is going to yield 10% automatically through smart contracts to back to the creator, which is like awesome. It's like fucking awesome. And as a concept, it's amazing because, you know, royalties were just never really leverageable in almost any business. You know, you only really hear about them in like the entertainment IP world. And there's constantly, constantly just endless amounts of lawsuits happening over this exact issue because it's so hard to enforce, you know, to get an access to like what, how much money was really made. Literally, that's like the question that the music industries, you right. know, artists have been asking for the last, like, you know, how much money was really made? Yeah. Where did it go? It's like, and then they put, spit out a bill. It's just like, what is this? It's like looking at a phone bill. You're like, what is this like at right. a charge here? Right. Like, does right. it make sense? <laughs> so, you know, what can happen is that if I make a uh, NFT on Ethereum blockchain, how does it go to another blockchain? The standard way of taking an asset from one blockchain to another blockchain right now is called wrapping, token wrapping. So your NFT is a token. It's not a real coin. It's a digital coin. It's a file, if you will. And there's another file that's going to go and eat that. It's like Russian doll. And that's the, you know, the Solana blockchain file. And so you've wrapped your Ethereum file with your Solana file, your Ethereum token with your Solana token. And now that wrap token can transmit along the rails of Solana. It's built for the smart contract interactions on Solana. And also just as a fun mind opener, you can think of an NFT as like an everything container. I can put anything into it, some way, shape, or form. Some things are harder than others, but you know, we're working on like kind of connecting physical objects to digital assets in an immutable way. It's gonna take a lot of science to really do that, but people are working on that. And you know, blockchains are kind of static rails and whatnot. Tokens can go across them. And because an NFT is like an everything container, you can put a smart contract in it. Software, you can build more software into it. And a smart contract can execute automatically anywhere that it exists and it gets the right inputs, right? So your NFT is a mobile smart contract that you can send around. And you can imagine how you might want to do that. Like, you know, it's just like, just like Ben Kenobi, like Leia sent a droid to Ben Kenobi or whatever. It's like, you can imagine that like, 
actually to get that message, it was like an NFT that required like a facial scan, you know, and it would only populate when like somebody with the right DNA or something like that, you know, was like in proximity to the, to the bot. Yeah. And that was a mobile smart contract that was sent within a, let's say theoretically a blockchain system that was networked into that droid. When do NFTs, when is it just the thing as it relates to everything that we've been talking about right there, where there's a lot of complications to it and things are being worked on. Like you talk about tickets, even tickets makes so much sense, right? That it would be an NFT, but do we call it NFT or does it just become the thing, right? Instead of like, it's just a part of the reservation. Like if I buy a ticket to go watch the Rams play, like sometimes you can buy the special NFT that goes with it. Like when is it just the thing and it's more mainstream and these things become easier and easier? And it's not necessarily a prediction, but like that's the direction it seems to me that we're heading to where you don't have to even use the word NFT anymore. It's just the thing. Yeah, I think it's going to take a long while, honestly, and okay. it may never happen. Honestly, like, like the concept of the NFT was created at basically out of a hackathon. Everybody agreed it was not a good name, a non-fungible token. That's what they were calling it then. And then it got shortened to NFT because people were just like, can't just say like that. enough saying yeah. non-fungible. <laughs> like I just said non-fungible like 800 times in right. this hackathon. Like I right. can't say it again. Yeah. And so the ERC-721 standard is like a crack at what an NFT could be, by the way. So most NFTs on Ethereum are based off of this standard. And there are a lot of different ways to hack it. And there's multiple standards that are out there now. And there will be quite a few more. In fact, I think that there's going to be a big revolution in evolution and kind of like token standard and sort of efforts to craft things that are smarter and more interesting. That's something that my team is working on with our NFT releases. But, you know, it also speaks back to like the security issues and trying to create like less hackable assets. Just as an aside to the uh, security thing, the point of failure nine times out of 10 is the human being, not the technology. Mm -hmm. There are technology errors and sometimes that happens and there's a big culture of white hat hacking that solves a lot of them. It doesn't catch everything. Sometimes there's a big caper, but, you know, with blockchain stuff, like in with digital transactions across the world, like at some point. It's very, very hard to get away with it over time. Like even the people that did like the Mt. Gox hack just got busted, you know, it took four years or whatever, and they just got tracked down. And so the FBI was working on it for a long time. It's going to be very challenging to sort of get away with a lot of the illegal activity that exists in financial markets in a robust blockchain system. By nature, it's a more detailed, less hackable system that relies on layers and layers of consensus to sort of do what it does. Anyway, sorry, I'm not going to get into the whole like kind of, you know, mathematical framework of it and sort of the energy framework, but it's like, it's nearly impossible to hack Bitcoin or Ethereum. Yeah. So for Bitcoin, it would take like kind of like more energy than it could be like created in a sense, logistically to do it. Yeah. The concern then goes back to the user, which then, you know, to go buy a stock, let's say, you want to go buy Nike stock, you just get an account, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, whatever. It's like, really easy to do deposit money into the account buy the stock you have it it's there it's held we're buying you know something on an nft is more complicated than that but that's the direction it's going where like you said people like you your team and other people like you are out there creating these things to make it more uh, maybe not mainstream but to get it closer to that where people feel more comfortable because like not everyone's going to have your technical ability to go and do all these things and or perhaps they don't want to spend the time to learn about it well Right, go ahead. Companies will make it easy, yeah. right? Because there's a business opportunity. You know, there's a business opportunity in a lot of areas of, I don't have time for this, but I want it. 
Yeah. Right? So it's like, I don't have time for this, but I want it. Like my sister-in-law's father is having some like old age, like mental issues. And he got like roped into some kind of like, you know, scam, some kind of like money scam. Like there's a lot of these things that are targeting like older folks. And I have a bunch of friends who have gone through similar things and whatnot. We're like, like a friend of mine's like, you know, VC partners, like father, who's like a legendary, like billionaire or something like that. Like, I think he got roped into some kind of scam that like raked almost a million dollars out of them. Anyway, multi-sig wallets, having nice user interfaces, like maybe it's a custodial situation. Like you started this conversation, you know, asking about like decentralization and, you know, does things need to be fully decentralized or can they be somewhat centralized and this and that? Like, you know, philosophically, I like the idea of decentralization because it combats a lot of things, but logistically, it's not always the right choice for a lot of reasons. And not every single feature of every blockchain app is a blockchain transaction. A lot of apps have like an interface that are sort of web two and sort of layer over, you know, we're really not quite like web three. We're more like 2.5 right now, if you want to get into that lexicon. But I think that in a lot of cases, most people are going to want a custodial wallet where like there's a company that's managing it that they trust and it's kind of helping them do safe transactions on the blockchain. And those types of things, you know, can be multi-sig, have a lot of different features, and they're going to be made by companies that are working really hard to nail the, the UI so that you feel really comfortable using it. And it's going to, you know, take some time to do it, just like, you know, it's taking time for us to kind of figure out how to make like Spotify. Right. <laughs> Spotify is like, you know, the 10 millionth music app. Right. There's daily examples of all these things. It's funny too, because as I ask these questions about all the security and the circumventing and the bad guys and all this, like I'm thinking about checks are stolen on a daily basis, right? People are taken advantage of, like you just mentioned, on a daily basis, like on a second basis. It's constantly happening. And we had this guy who called us up and somehow they'd gotten a hold of our check, but it clearly wasn't one of our checks. Someone had stolen the check number, signed a name. It was clearly fictitious. The bank didn't buy it, but this people tried to cash these checks and there was like $20,000 each and there's like five of them floating all over the country. And some scammer was out there taking advantage of these people, trying to get them to cash the checks and then they wouldn't notice it for 30 days and then they got to go pay the money back. So yeah, NFTs like, yeah, are there problems there? Of course, but it's like people are getting taken advantage of constantly out there. We get spam calls daily or links, right? Click here to access your PayPal account, which it had nothing to do with PayPal, just trying to take advantage of you, like you said. So it's like we can sit here and think like all the negativity that exists potentially going down this new path, but it's like we're already living in it with everything else that we have going on. So here's something you know, on the security tip that you could imagine or that I could imagine at least. Like right now, it's not in vogue to do what I'm going to describe. But there's no reason why it wouldn't just sort of become like this because the sort of needs and the desires and what appeals to people in the NFT consumer base is changing, right? That's my long, stupid preference. Let's say I'm the Board 8 Got Club and I make 10,000 NFTs. Those are specifically 10,000 NFTs. Like if somebody stole one from somebody else right now, they can't really do anything about it. They're just free assets moving across blockchains right now. There's not that much they can do about it. They can try to go through like tracking people and getting people busted. They can get the FBI or some other like agencies involved. It's difficult. Private investigation, you know, lawsuits. Anyway, it can take a long time. And this asset can just move like a million times, right? If somebody really wanted to get rid of it or whatever, they could just loop it around all over. They could wrap it with another token, take it off network for a while. So the Board Ape Yacht Club didn't install a button in the back end of the code that says, we'll burn your token if you misuse it. And if you steal it from somebody and they can prove that, you know, we'll just go reissue them a new token. This one is 4675A and the next one's going to be 4675B. 
And as far as our system is concerned, it's just as legitimate as the original one. And whether or not the culture sort of agrees with that would be like an interesting kind of like crux point. But I personally think that this is one of the sort of solutions that people are going to experiment with. You can build kind of like auto burn mechanisms in the back end of things like, oh, it looks like this is being abused. Like, so the next time it transacts, it's going to auto burn. There's a lot of things you can do with smart contracts. And it's kind of like an evolving target right now of like, well, what is like the polite thing to do? Like, what does culture actually want? People are going to experiment with it and try stuff out and just like run it through the maze and kind of see how it plays out. And some of these things are like kind of very simple, like cute art projects with like primitive novelties in the smart contracts that I think someday will become like standardized, like boilerplate Legos that people kind of build into like very robust NFTs that are doing all kinds of things. Yeah. Understanding all this, like one of the things that's most fascinating to me is the people I'm surrounded by. There's a lot of creative talent out there and it exists. And I think the creative world, and I think you mentioned this somewhere as an opportunity right now, things are changing, right? It's not like sitting at a desk anymore. It's like, what can we create? So if I think of art, like you see a piece of art behind me, photographs, drawings, books, right? Authors, people who write songs, songwriters. If we just take the physical side of that, let's just take physical art and start there. And you can maybe help me with this. If we were to turn these these pieces of art into an NFT, obviously we're seeing that, we're hearing about it. We're hearing people can take pictures of it and you can put it out there and you can sell it, right? Like, what are you seeing as the way to go about taking physical art, right, and turning it into an NFT? I think the reality of that is how credible does the authentic item need to be? You know, to what degree is it going to be like scrutinized? on a certain level and like how authentic and authenticated does it need to be in order to establish like incontrovertible credibility. And to me, that's a moving target based on the asset. Like, you know, if it was like a paper napkin, I probably couldn't give a shit. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Unless it was like Elvis writing his song lyrics and someone had access to it, right? Could that be worth something? Sure. That was, okay. That one, probably, you know, that has like historical value, like mimetic value, it's cultural, it's just a time capsule type of thing to somebody that has value. Mm -hmm. So for that thing, like let's say it was the Mona Lisa, right? There could be only one, all right? Mm -hmm. So then we get into layers of science to establish incontrovertible truth. And I can tell you that there's probably like a good five, 10 year landscape ahead of us, like ongoing of establishing this to the very first, like kind of truly unhackable, marketable asset. It's likely to come out of like Nike. You know, at the moment, Nike's investing a lot of capital into like sort of figuring this out. But essentially, you're getting into like mass spectrum chromatography and you're getting into chemical laser analysis and atomic signatures, you know, the inscription of atomic signatures, that would be very, very hard to, you know, like, and you can think of it the same way, like, like, do you ever see like the Catch Me If You Can movie with like Leonardo DiCaprio? Oh, yeah. Great movie. All right. So you got this like dialectic between like Leonardo DiCaprio, like creating forgeries and like Tom Hanks, like trying to create better versions that are like unhackable. And then, you know, Leo's just a badass artist, actually, somehow. And he's just like, keeps hacking it, keeps hacking it. And then, you know, the system kind of keeps like, adjusting, adjusting, adjusting. And eventually the system wins over time until there's a new young hacker that'll come and sort of expose the weaknesses. And then, you know, the system will adjust. And it's just like, you know, a body responding to a virus, like the virus is going to attack and penetrate and the body's going to respond to it and sort of adjust and build like new forms of defense. 
I think that this is the same, you know, kind of thing that we have, you know, to sort of like ahead of us on not just the security issues, but also on like, you know, how do we establish the security of like a physical and what degrees of like security do different physicals kind of need? Like what if it's a NFT for a gaseous substance, you know? Yeah. Like, how do I deal with that? How do I like create an NFT for that? Like now we're starting to get into a level of like chemical analysis or maybe even atomic analysis that is like beyond what instrumentation would sort of be able to do in an efficient way. So like new instrumentation is going to have to be created to go and figure out like exactly how many like atoms are in this like, you know, this drum of gas or this, you know, whatever. It wouldn't be a drum. It would be like a bag. You know, so like a bladder of gas or whatever. Like, so I, like I'm thinking of like natural gas that's used, you know, for energy production or something like that. So, you know, there would be like an NFT on the bag, but then maybe there's some degree of like, you know, where it's like this substance is so important and so valuable and so precious or whatever that we like we need to calculate how many atoms are in this and, you know, use and create technologies that can go and interpret that data and verify that data. Now, I'm kind of imagining like an nth degree of like effort and I can't imagine a specific scenario that would need that at the moment. But I just think that there's people that are always going to try to abuse the system and they're almost like needed to like expose like the weakness and sort of the people that are trying to create the system. I don't know if you've ever done any like martial arts and whatnot, but you know, like if you're studying martial arts and you're training and you're sparring, like really like martial arts is not about like kicking ass. It's like about like exposing your weaknesses as an individual through like the practice of combat, mental, physical so that you can become better. And the better that you become, like kind of the better that you, the more you can kind of contribute to like the world and, you know, also be able to kind of like, you know, receive the gifts of the world and whatnot. And that's the sort of like philosophy, you know, at the core of most martial arts. I really like capoeira as an example of this because it's like a whole martial art that's actually just evolved into like a dance form. But the dance form is all based around like exposing, you know, your opponents like gaps and stuff like that while also just being really cool. And making like lots of cool movements, and there's something really beautiful about that. That is allegorical in my mind to the sort of cycle of how these things work. Like hacker's going to hack, defender's going to defend. It's going to evolve and get stronger. Yeah. Well, we need to find like we need someone out there finding these loopholes. Like it's no different than in life, where we're always making mistakes, we're always learning, and we evolve because of it. And oftentimes, you look back, you're like they didn't necessarily want to go through that moment in their life. But they needed to go through that moment in their life to be better for it, to learn from it, to, right? I mean, it's like microcosm is to a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here. Yeah, go ahead. Finish off your thought. So it's like on a micro level, like I might get hacked, but on a macro level, there's a part of me that's like kind of just accepts that like this is, you know, a part of life. Just like my window might get smashed out when I've like parked my car in the city because times are tough or whatever, or somebody was angry or whatever. Like I can't control that. All I can do is like, you know, fix my window and go about my life and try not to let it like mess up my day. Yeah. Or learn from it, right? Maybe you don't park there in the future or get better security. Yeah. Learn from it. Don't park there in the future or, you know, get really involved in like economic assistance in that neighborhood, you know, because my neighborhood sucks and, and people need help. There's a lot of layers to like all those things. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the physical art. If we take that and we took a picture of it, and maybe we did more with it than just take a picture, right? But you get the idea. And we actually digitize it. We have the original physical piece of art. We can keep it, right? We can keep it in the family. We could burn it so it doesn't exist anymore. So the original is now the digital art, right? Is there something that we can do with that, right? Because you talked about the middle person in galleries 
and you know other people are taking it and taking control of it and the original creator of it doesn't get a whole lot or if they do they're getting a smaller percentage of it well now they can actually be in control of it but maybe they don't sell it in a gallery maybe that gallery is in web 2.5 web 2, web 3 right talk to me about that like do you see that happening right now or is that a reach so what you're describing is like for some reason a physical artwork has been converted into digital the physical is destroyed either destroyed or not for sale somehow okay yeah well certainly that's happening i think there's a lot of cases actually where there's like artists like especially painters or physical artists that are making something physical digitizing it selling the digitals and keeping the original i actually think it's kind of a cool opportunity for artists to do that some artists are really building stuff at scale i come from a world of like huge like monumental installation art i have a little background in that and so usually what's going on is like there's a study that's created that's smaller and then like a big scale thing is you know executed by a giant team and the artist keeps like the original study, but sometimes they're selling those in order to finance the big sculpture. In this case, they would be able to sell like digitals to a collector base. If they can access that collector base, they can sell digitals. And I've seen people do that. Like uh, you know, there's some famous artist designers in the space, like Daniel Arsham, who makes all different kinds of design and art and stuff like that. But his NFTs are basically like digital atmospheres and kind of architectural like experiences that are very heavenly and they're animated. And you know, these are places that he would also probably like to design and the types of things that he would build, or maybe with like a touch of fantasy that's like, you know, beyond what you can create. But like I bet he would also want to create those in a metaverse space and whatnot. So like to me, the very obvious place where all this stuff starts is that it's like a Kickstarter model. Like I don't have to create the item. I can create the meme of the item or the idea and sell that to sort of generate an audience or give it away or whatever to generate. You know, there's a lot of different models, right? To generate an audience around an idea. And then maybe I go and execute like sort of the thing at the, like another stage or whatever, like that can help finance the production of something. There's also been some kind of like random cases where people have like destroyed a Banksy, digitized it, fractionalized it, sold it as pieces. And that was like an interesting stunt. You know, is that valuable? Is that as valuable as the Banksy? Time will tell if that was like an interesting intervention. But I think that probably in a lot of cases in like the art world, like a gallery is not going to go buy that. Mm -hmm. But maybe they will. You know, maybe some gallery will be like, that was punk as fuck. And that was an interesting moment in art and we want to buy that. And it's still a Banksy in a certain sense. And like it stretches the boundaries of like truth and reality and plays with new technology. So, you know, there's that. There's certainly been efforts by major, like I'm in the high-end art worlds. So like, you know, name your famous artist, pop artists, you know, any artist or whatever foundation, they're all looking at NFTs. And some of them have done stuff like Warhol Foundation did some NFTs where they basically just did like digital versions of, I think like soup cans or something like that. And, you know, sold those in like a major auction and stuff like that. And for novelty stuff like that, being early to market is probably good. Whether or not there's a big space in the market for like digital reproductions of every single artist at the same scale as like, there's going to be some top of the market kind of one and everything else will sort of like arbitrage at like, you know, 60% or below that value as like things often do in, in kind of like high-end markets like this. This world is very interesting because it's upending a lot of the natural quote-unquote economics of the traditional art world. And the traditional art world is based around like a certain number of galleries at a certain level, a certain number of artists that are traded at a certain level 
the volume, if they're a living artist, like they're really trying to prevent too many works coming out, be very careful about how many works are coming out, you know, because they could saturate the market, this and that. And this world is totally the opposite. It's like, give it away for free, let everybody see it, but, you know, give it a CCO license, you know, Creative Commons, like open license, you know, where people can go and make derivatives off of it, build the mimetic value of this so that we can build an industry and, you know, on top of it, like, to me, it's kind of like a, a very interesting and kind of agile path towards creating lifestyle brands from the inside out, from the people outwards, that is going to create a lot of really interesting user experiences, consumer experiences. And it wouldn't be possible without sort of the foundation of this technology. Yeah. These ideas are possible, but they just weren't functional. Right. There's certain rails now that are just kind of making it functional. Well, and that piece of art you see behind me is from my mom, right? I've been in the art world. My grandmother was an artist. And so there's paintings, there's banners, there's pictures, there's, they're all over the place in different houses and galleries. And to see it, to say, well, you mentioned the local artist uh, thing that they did in Buffalo, New York, which is where I'm from. And local artists painted these buffaloes and they put them all around the city. So you're coming off the highway, you're outside the Bills game, you're at these different places. And then eventually, you know, so they're there and people love them and they take pictures of them and all that kind of stuff. And eventually they sell them. And I don't exactly know what it was for, but it was to give back to the city, right? And the local artists were giving back to the city. You could do that same type of thing, right? Using blockchain technology, right? Doing something else with it, but just being in that art world for so long. I'm fascinated by like what could be done with it. And it's not about, okay, well, how much money can we make off of it? But how can you not take advantage even like, put something out there and utilize the technology that exists to be able to create more. I think a lot of times artists create, they want to make something off of it so they can pay their bills and they can do the thing that they love doing. And I think that a lot of times is the core of it because it's so meaningful to them. And it's like, okay, so here we are at this point and how do we help those creatives get involved? Yeah. Well, I echo everything that you're saying. I think like if you're a creative person, this is a really incredible space and opportunity. To me, it's sort of bridging an essential gap towards a real life experience that feels like magic because we can create bespoke, unlockable digital experiences. We're just getting into the, you know, a world where like AR glasses and AR ready phones and whatnot are a reality. And that means that we can digital experiences are like kind of unlimited in terms of what you can do visually and sound and stuff like that. Like tactile is a certain thing that's kind of like going to take a while to sort of really emerge. But like, I think we'll probably get better and better at sort of, you know, creating a lot of these different types of experiences. And that means that like, you can walk into a room and say like, bibbidi bobbidi boo and that activates like a magic wand. And that magic wand is in like a, a light field array where if like you wave it in the right kind of formation, you know, and do the right pattern, in the air, then it unlocks a door, you know, <laughs> and you go through that door and that door, you know, gets you into the next sort of experience or whatever. And I don't think the whole world wants to be like this, but like there's a version of like using a hand gesture to unlock your front door when you're coming home that you would want to be like as unhackable as possible. Right. And you can imagine sort of so some of these types of technologies can be integrated, you know, so that you can go and do that and the door just like opens for you, but not for somebody else if they go and do that motion. I think that for people that have a creative mind and are interested in gamification, which is really sort of like the generational shift of like how we just design the world, like sort of this generation and onwards is really into like rewards 
We've learned psychologically that rewards are better than punishments to build more efficient systems. You reward stuff like like if you wanted to build a better traffic system, you would reward people for driving in the speed limit, like doing airdrops. Like you just got an airdrop for like driving in the speed limit. Fucking awesome. High five. Like a lot of people would do that. Yeah. I think Malcolm Gladwell wrote about that. Like there's a town somewhere. I don't know where it was, but it wasn't, you know, pulling people over and giving them the worst day they've had in a long time. It was actually rewarding them for good behavior. The opposite, like you're saying. There's also the concept of negative rewards, which is also very important. There's not to say that like, you know, we can live in a world like that's totally free of like guilt and shame and remorse for like doing something that was wrong or, you know, you're still going to stub your toe against something and realize that like, you know, rocks are hard. You shouldn't do that. But, you know, I think that for people that are interested in creating novel experiences, this is like an industry, this is an opportunity and technology that enables, you know, really incredible things to happen in a much more activated way than they were before, because you can integrate not just like the real world, but also, you know, digital layers that didn't exist before. Yeah. As it relates to that in the smart contracts, so let's say an artist creates a piece, right? You can sell that piece and there's a smart contract behind it. Maybe you get access to the artist when they speak or when a new piece comes out, you're first in line to look at it, right? Or whatever that might be. And it says lifetime access. As it relates to that, what if like the person doesn't hold up their end of the bargain? Like, because there's always one sided contracts. Are these smart contracts one sided? You know, to say, like, you know what? I decided I didn't want to do it. Like Gary Vee's handing out opportunities to go to his events in the future. What if he stopped doing that for whatever reason? What happens there? Well, people are going to be upset. Right. Do you destroy your brand? Is that just mostly it? I think that's pretty damaging for a brand. And in the hyper-connected world and ever more hyper-connected world that we live in, reputation is kind of going to become, I think, like probably like the most valuable piece of equity that any person or brand can have. So you damage your reputation and that can be really significant in the echo chambers of social media, especially like that can really go wide fast. So I think that people interested in having like longevity, you know, have an obligation to like follow through. And if they don't, they're going to have to be really good communicators. Otherwise they're, you know, probably going to get canceled in a lot of cases. And the kind of blacklisting effects that exists, like if you raise money, you know, for a startup, like in the CPG industry and your startup fails or whatever, the news might travel around that industry, but it probably won't reach like the tech industry. Like, you know, later in life, you go do some tech and people are like, oh, you failed the chocolate chip company. That's funny. What'd you learn? You know? <laughs> yeah. But you go and try to raise money for another chocolate chip company. People are going to be like, well, you're going to fail this one. So like, I have to like really think about this and maybe I'm just not even interested. And now kind of add like kind of blockchain technology to that where, you know, reputation systems and sort of activity, you know, is more trackable and sort of averageable. I don't think people are going to really like in the Western world, you know, apps that are really doing like harsh analysis, but things that are doing like kind of positive analysis, like, like you can analyze somebody's wallet to see like, did they go to all the concerts, you know, and that would give them a positive score with like, you know, the Aerosmith tour or something. And that gives them, you know, the opportunity to unlock like new NFTs or merch experiences or like other stuff. I think that there are places like the mortgage lending system that might go and be like, well, I can see that like you've done a bunch of like weird stuff over here and you might not be like the type of person that we want to lend to or whatever. And like that kind of happen. You know, I worry about that type of thing and sort of discriminatory practices with this type of technology. But hopefully what happens is that, you know, kind of what's happening right now, which is that the technology is attracting a lot of creative people that have a lot of very, you know, solid values, very communitarian. 
they want what's best for each other and they want a better deal. And they're here to, you know, kind of engineer that as best they can with programming. Yeah. To take the choice out of it, you know, out of the hands of somebody who might abuse it for all different kinds of reasons. They have a fucking headache. So they just didn't process the paperwork in time. Yeah. Which happens all the time. Yeah, it does. You know, like a lot of people in hospitals die from doctor related complications. And sometimes it's just because like the medical records didn't get transferred. Oh man. I have an insurance business and the slowness of it. It's so archaic in how it's done and how, you know, it could take months, right, to get an offer for the client. And I mean, there's so many pieces, whether it's across I, state lines. I think for yeah. sure healthcare is going blockchain. Yeah. It's always been on the docket. Even with Bitcoin launch, like the next thing was like healthcare. We're going to solve healthcare finally. It has to. Oh, it has to. I mean, you look at mental health, right? I mean, there's so many different things. Like it just everything is getting in the way of the purpose of doing it. You said something. I actually wrote this down because it was really good. And I don't know where you said it, but NFTs make smart contracts, mobile on blockchains. Someday your AI lawyer NFT will settle disputes with my AI lawyer NFT outside of court. Like there's so much going on in that statement and the things like future of lawyers, smart contracts versus contracts, AI, like, and all that could be taking place. Like the legal industry. And I'm not saying that we might, we're not going to need lawyers, but aren't lawyers going to have to have some ability? And we just talked to one on here recently to change maybe and think about the way they're doing business. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to hop in a second. Yeah. But this is an interesting thing to sort of talk about. And, you know, maybe we'll have another quick conversation and progress these ideas. But even though I totally do believe that like my AI NFT contract bot, is going to interact with your NFT AI contract bot and settle a bunch of stuff. There's always going to be like some things that are off the menu. And AI is incredibly powerful. It's fascinating, but it's really, it's not like universally applicable in, you know, the ways that we imagine, like in, you know, film and stuff like that, at least not yet. Like we're pretty far away from certain things. Like I can train an AI to compose a sentence, but it's very hard for me to train an AI to decide if it's a good sentence. Like, is this poetry or is this not poetry? It can evaluate things in a certain way, but like the real answer to that question is a very human proposition that gets down to like, does this make me feel anything? You know? Yeah. And the computer can't really decide that. It can just sort of run a lot of averages and make probabilistic discoveries. I have this like silly fantasy that like future AI from other planets will come and try to analyze like what our kind of like remnants of our civilization were all about. And they'll find a lot of video content where people are having intelligent conversations. And even intelligent people use certain kind of like amorphous words that mean a lot of things in context, but don't really mean anything like blah, blah, blah. Like I was going to the store, blah, blah, blah. I picked up some stuff and I went home. What yeah. does blah, blah, blah mean? Right. Like how does an AI go and contextualize that in a real way that actually makes sense and whatnot? So my silly fantasy is that like blah, blah, blah will just become like the universal word that means everything. And it's just like the only word that ever exists like in the future. <laughs> anyway, silly yeah. thought. Yeah. So <laughs> it's going to take a long time for AI to be able to go and figure that out. So in a lot of cases, like a lawyer is still going to be needed for a lot of things. And certain things are always going to, you know, like just like there's going to be, you know, like some new hacker that goes and innovates and figures something out. Like our computer systems, the most complex computer systems that we've been able to create so far are still like, fractional in power and versatility compared to what a human brain can do. So there's a lot of opportunity and advancement to kind of like develop there. And I think we'll certainly get there. We're that narcissistic that, you know, we'll go and exactly try to replicate ourselves as best we possibly can over time. Yeah. What do we learn more about you 
and where do we continue to read more about all that we talked about today? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Meta5, and that's spelled M3TAFIVE. So a three instead of the E. And from there, you can access my blog. I do a, a medium. And we also, with my agency, we do a daily NFT report that's uh, like five day a week, like all the NFT news that you need, headlines, you know, interesting stuff. It's not trying to sell you anything. It's really just more informative. It's like your five minute read to kind of stay on top of what's going on. And that has a Twitter handle and also an email list and also has a 60,000 person Facebook group. So the Twitter handle is at prob nothing and it's P-R-O-B-N-X-T-H-I-N-G. And Facebook group is facebook.com backslash groups backslash NFT club. And if you're a person just trying to like figure out how to like make NFTs and kind of you know get advice and stuff, it's a, that the Facebook group is actually the best place you can go because there's just literally 60,000 people there like trying to help you answer like what is an NFT and what can you do with it? Yeah, yeah. I got in there this morning. So I'm in. Jordan, I appreciate it. I have thousands of questions. I hope we can continue to talk offline. I do appreciate your time and insights, man. This is great. And like you said, there's so much opportunity that's out there. And I think we just all have to have an open mind and, and think about this. And like you said, there's so much community around NFTs that there's so many discussions to be had, right? Or just hop into a Twitter spaces and just just listen and read a little bit. And I think it's amazing what's coming. So absolutely. Oh, you're clearly really inspired by all this and you see the possibility. And I think that's a fun state to be in. It's like I can't remember the last time like there was something fun to play with that was like this. Right. That maybe this excited. It was like Legos, like when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like I can build anything. You know? Yeah. 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 That's awesome, man. Well, thank you. One of my favorite things about our sports epreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at sports epreneur. Thank you for listening to this Cad Source production, the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Mm-hmm.